Genesis chapter 15, and I want to go ahead and jump right into the text this morning. I'm not going to give you a whole lot of time to turn there because you don't have very far to go. It's right in the very front of your Bible. So Genesis chapter 15, starting in verse 1, we're going to jump right in. God's Word says, After these things, the Word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven, and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. I find it to be a strange thing to teach the Word of God to others. And I mean that in the sense because mostly I feel like the least qualified person to do so. Especially in a room like this where so many of you are so much more spiritually mature, so much more seasoned. There's so much more spiritual wisdom that sits in front of me right now in this moment that makes me feel even more unqualified to teach you God's Word. I just feel like it's an interesting thing. When God gives me the opportunity, God gives me the privilege to stand and teach His Word to others, it's a, it's a strange thing to me sometimes that I would be in a position to teach anybody anything about the Word of God and how to follow him in their own lives. And that's, like I said, mostly because I feel like the most unqualified person to do so. And that stems completely out of an insufficient and inadequate place of struggle to carry out this calling that I know that God has placed upon my life. As a matter of fact, if I was being completely transparent and honest with you, I would say that my greatest battle on a daily basis is with my insufficiencies. My insufficiencies as a husband, my insufficiencies as a dad, my insufficiencies as a minister, as a leader, as a friend, all the different roles, all the different hats that God's enabled me to wear in this life, and so many of those I feel inadequate in, so many of those I feel insufficient in. Can anybody relate? Anybody struggle with insufficiency? Anybody struggle with inadequacy? I look at the things that God has called me to. I look at the places that he's called me to be those things in. And so many times I just feel completely inadequate and insufficient to be those things. So much so that it led to me learning from God that I suffered from a deficiency, as a matter of fact. Something that I've come to know is my sufficiency deficiency. It's a struggle for me to feel sufficient. It's a struggle for me to feel adequate so much time of my life. As a matter of fact, the CDC, in a literal sense, actually shows us that around 90% of Americans are physically deficient as far as their vitamin intake is concerned. So just think, that's a, that's a large number of people. The vast majority of us in here, medical research shows, right now in this moment, are vitamin deficient in some way. You lack something. There's some key vitamin that your body needs that, that you're lacking, that you are deficient in. And obviously these deficiencies, they vary in degree of severity. But they do begin to displace some symptoms 
in our lives in varying degrees. And so I want to show you what some of these symptoms may look like and maybe even help you with a diagnosis today that you didn't even know that you needed. You might be vitamin deficient. You didn't even know it. So some of these deficiencies when it comes to us lacking essential vitamins is that you can experience fatigue. So you're just tired constantly. Now, I understand that we're all tired all the time. Any kind of conversation I have on a regular basis with somebody and you ask about how they're doing, I'm just wore out. Everybody's wore out like all the time. It's amazing the, the state of fatigue that we all just chronically live in, apparently. But fatigue can be a symptom of a vitamin deficiency. Dizziness can be one as well. Your skin can actually become pale and yellow if you are vitamin deficient in some ways. You can experience muscle weakness. You can even display, as studies have shown, personality changes. So you can become vitamin deficient to such an extent that the personality of who you are begins to change. Your disposition as a person can begin to change. And these symptoms, they're typically subtle. So they don't always just manifest themselves in some grandeur manner. They're subtle. They kind of just unveil themselves a little bit as a time. And so what can happen is, is you can be deficient for months or maybe even years and not even realize that it's taking place in your life before some of these symptoms begin to develop and take place. And as time increases, the deficiency begins to worsen and increase as well. The longer that you are unaware of the problem, the longer you go without treating it, the worse the deficiency becomes in your life, all as a result of the body not getting enough of what it needs. And so here lately, God has really opened my eyes to the fact that I'm sufficient deficient. My sufficiency levels are severely lacking. And in a similar manner, there are some symptoms that had been there in my life for a long time, but they were so subtle that I hadn't really ever paid attention to what was causing it. And now I've realized that there are some issues there, that I'm in some bad shape. I've had a shortage for a long time of understanding what it means to be sufficient in Christ. And as those symptoms became to be made known, God has begun to work in my life and show me how to get that regulated. And I believe that a lot of us as followers of Jesus are suffering in the same manner. We're suffering from a sufficiency deficiency. You're struggling in the same manner like I have to feel adequate, to, to feel sufficient in whatever it is that God has called you to do. And they exhibit some symptoms as well. This deficiency will manifest itself, and I'm going to show you some of the symptoms. And I can give you these because I myself have been diagnosed and know what to look for. So I'm not a medical professional. I wouldn't even call myself a spiritual professional. But God has taken me through some things and shown me some things that I want to help you identify as well that may be evident in your life. So someone who struggles with a sufficiency deficiency will begin to exhibit self-doubt. You struggle with self-doubt a whole lot. You also struggle with low esteem. You're constantly just downing on yourself. Uh, even, even if somebody wants to pay you a compliment, you can't take it. And so you struggle with self-doubt. You struggle with low esteem. You begin to struggle with weak confidence levels. So even though you know that you're in the middle of something that God has called you to do, you're in the middle of something that God has promised to you, you're in the middle of doing something that you know God set you upon, you're not following the, the path of your own life. You're following the path that you believe God has laid out for you. You don't have any confidence in that. 
as just a severely weakened state of living confidently in what God has set you in. On top of that, you can begin to experience devaluing. So you constantly devalue yourself. You struggle with an inferiority complex as well. So you look around at other men and women of God or other people in your life, and you see God's blessings there. You see God's promises there. You see God doing things in their life, but it seems to be lacking in yours. And so you see yourself constantly as inferior to the people that are a part of your life. And then one of the last symptoms that I think can be one of the most detrimental is that a lot of times you will experience elevated levels of people-pleasing. And so people that struggle with feeling insufficient, that struggle with feeling inadequate, constantly feel the need and the desire to have everybody around them like them and be happy within their presence. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to people please to an extent. It's better than the opposite. I'd much rather you be the kind of person that wants people to like you than to be the kind of person that just wants everybody to dislike you. But that can carry over into a place that's dangerous. It can be too much of that. As a matter of fact, most of the people in my life, and I've experienced this as well, most of the people that, that are the, the biggest strugglers of people-pleasing are the ones who will constantly say that they don't care what others think. But it's just a mask. It's like we're telling ourselves that in some way or form to try and convince us of a truth that we're not believing or living in. And so when we struggle with feeling sufficient, when we're deficient in this manner, we begin to have elevated levels of people-pleasing. And I think maybe for some of you, for months, maybe even years, you've battled with feeling adequate or qualified to live on the level that Jesus has placed you on. Jesus gives us a high calling. Would you agree? Regardless of what that calling looks like, you may not be called to live as a full-time missionary. You may not be called in a full-time ministry. But the call to follow Christ, regardless, is a high one. Agreed? And I think it's one that a lot of times that we look at in our best efforts, we try to live out, but we fall short so often that we think there's no way. I can't live to the level that Christ has called me to. He is constantly upset with me. He is constantly disappointed in me. He is constantly frustrated with me. And that just fuels this deficiency that we have in our lives of feeling inadequate, feeling insufficient. And I think a lot of us just need to admit that we're sufficient deficient. That it's a struggle. And so God makes this covenant with Abraham. And he says, I will make you into a great nation. But the problem is, Sarah is barren. And after a few years go by with no positive pregnancy test, things begin to go sour for Abraham and Sarah in a hurry. How are you going to have a great nation come out of a couple that can't bear children? So I want to skip over to Genesis chapter 16. We begin to see how things unfold for Abraham and Sarah in this journey in verse 1. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. It's funny how God's intention, when not accomplished in our desired time frame, translates then to us as God's prevention. In chapter 15, God says, I will make you into a great nation. 
But in chapter 16, when that hasn't happened on the time frame that Abraham and Sarah thought that it should, Sarah now paints that as God's prevention. I know God said this, but God hasn't done this, so God's keeping us from having this. And it's just funny how we operate in the same mode. God may speak a promise into your life, but when it doesn't happen, when it doesn't move at the rate in which you think it should, when it hadn't showed up on the time frame that you think it should, even though God promised it would happen, it hadn't shown up yet, so obviously God's keeping it from happening now. It's funny how backwards our logic becomes in the midst of this situation. And so Sarah says to Abram, Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. And so after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and and me, but Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Let's talk about the pressure to measure a little bit this morning. I really think that in many ways our sufficiency deficiency originates from this pressure to measure up that our culture pushes on us at a very early age in life. And I mean like a very early age. From the moment that you are born onto this earth, you already have benchmarks that you have to reach. There is the baby growth curve that everybody keeps track of you from the moment that you arrive on this earth. And I mean, I actually know all about the baby growth curve because Graham was a preemie when he showed up. So every appointment, every checkup, everything I went to as well, you know, he's, he's in this percentile and it, this is normal percentile. Like the moment that we show up on this earth, there are cultural benchmarks that society says you should be at this level at this specific time of your life, even as an infant. On top of that, you grow up and you get older, you get into school, and then there's the A, B, honor roll. And that's great for those of us that make it. But then for those of us that don't, it's like, well, what about me? In that moment, the moment that you walk up, they post the avion right there smack in the middle of the hallway at the principal's office for everybody to see. And all these kids run up, look at it, and they're like fist pumping because they made it. And then you walk up and you ain't on there. And the moment that happens, a deficiency creeps in. The moment that happens, inadequacy creeps in. That's great to make good grades. It's great to strive for that. But for those of you that didn't make the A.B. honor roll, something set in right then that you might have been carrying with you ever since. Well, that's good for you smart people. That's great. Whoop-de-doo, I can make good grades. Look at me. I can read a book. <laughs> you move on from there, and you start to try out for sports. And you think, okay, the academics wasn't the thing, so i got to have something that must be sports. And then you get cut. <laughs> you didn't make that team either. They posted that right beside the A.B. honor roll, and there's your name not on there again. And a deficiency creeps in because somebody in that moment looked at you, evaluated your skill level, and said, not good enough, so you can't be on the team. And a deficiency crept in. And an adequate feeling entered into your mind, into your heart. Maybe it's been there ever since. Cultural benchmarks. You get out of all this stuff, and then the culture says, well, you got to go to college. you got to earn a degree. you got to have a master's. you got to have a Ph.D. or whatever. So there's all these other benchmarks to get to. 
And if you didn't attain to that, if you didn't have those things beside you, you don't have any of those letters beside your name, then a deficiency creeps in. On top of that, they say, all right, you got to be married by a certain state. So I can't be single past a certain age. I got to be married and I got to have kids. And then the culture tells me that I got to have this kind of car and I got to wear these kind of clothes and I got to have this size square footage house and I got to have X amount of dollars in my bank account. And each and every time we fall short of one of those cultural benchmarks, a deficiency creeps in. We begin to feel insufficient. We begin to feel inadequate each time that we come up short and that's exactly what has happened to Abraham and Sarah they started feeling the pressure Abraham's supposed to have an heir he's picked up his family to pursue this promise that God has told them to follow after in and now none of it's falling into place it all seems to be falling apart and all this pressure begins to build up inside of Abraham on top of that he knows that people are watching Everybody's looking at my life. Everybody's seeing how these things aren't coming to pass, and it's just pressure, 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 pressure. On top of that, you have Sarah, who's supposed to bear children, but she can't. Now she feels like an embarrassment. There's the pressure to carry on, to, to, to somehow think that God's promise is contingent upon her ability and so there's pressure when that's not coming through. There's disappointment. There's embarrassment. And I think, you know, you ladies, I can't relate to this struggle, obviously. But I think for most women, and not all, but I think for most women, it is a desire for you to one day to be a mother. And if something prevents that from happening, I can only imagine the insecurities and the inadequacies that begin to set in because of that. And especially in this time frame, like having kids back in these days was like a big deal for women, like a really, really big deal. Like it was, it was a cultural shame if you could not bear children. So imagine what Sarah's going through. Imagine what she's dealing with. Imagine the whispering that, that she's there. Imagine every time Sarah goes to the, to the, to the grocery store, she's struggling we're thinking everybody's looking at me. Everybody's talking about me. Everybody's wondering what's, what's going on with me. So all this begins to set in. This pressure begins to build. They're both starting to feel the pressure to measure up, and it's resulting in feelings of insufficiency. Christmas time is a pressure-packed season. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, we're all supposed to be merry and bright and all that, but how's that going for you so far? It's pressure-packed. Like, I love the Christmas season, but man, it's pressure. Like, pressure to host, pressure to decorate, pressure to cook. You got to buy the presents. Like, you try to enjoy the season. It's supposed to be fun. But there's so much pressure involved with it. And everywhere you look, you're beginning to feel more insufficient and more inadequate. See, like, like if you're like, like, here's how bad it is for me. Like, we can say, oh, okay, let's go, let's go take a ride. We're going to look at Christmas lights. That's fun, good fun, family fun. We get to riding around and looking at lights, and all I can look at is the lights on the houses that are all bigger and better than mine. And so I'm now I'm driving around. I don't care about lights. I'm just seeing all these houses that are better than mine. And as we're going down the road, we're passing all these cars that are better than my clunker that we're driving around. You know, and as we, as we move on, we're talking to, with, other, with other adults in a similar stage of life about what we're buying our kids and presents and all that stuff. And I'm like, well, we got our kids this. And I'm like, there ain't no way we get our kids that. So I'm like, well, now we stink as parents. Like, it's just pressure, pressure, pressure. All throughout this time of year. So I'm feeling insufficient. I'm feeling inadequate. I know some of you, I think, are feeling the same exact things. And what I want you to see today is what this pressure to measure does to us. 
and how it is a major contributing factor in developing a sufficiency deficiency. So the first thing I want you to see is this, is that it wreaks internal havoc. If we go back into the story in verse 2, I want to show you a few of the details of what's actually taking place inside their household. In verse 2, that it says, Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. So the longer that this promise of God was going unfulfilled, in Abraham and Sarah's eyes, the more the pressure began to bubble internally. As a man, Abraham is feeling insufficient to produce an heir. Perhaps he's saying at this point he's done something wrong because here's my default. If God makes a promise in my life or he tells me he's going to do something specific and then after a certain amount of time goes by, if that hasn't happened, if something hasn't gave, if a door hasn't opened, if I've yet to see that thing come to a reality, I begin to defaultly think that I've done something wrong to mess it up. That somehow, in some way, I've upset God, that he's frustrated, that he's disappointed with an action or a thought that I did or didn't have. And now because of that, the consequence is the promise has been removed. And so I think Abraham's beginning to, to struggle internally, thinking, well, have I done something wrong? Have I messed this up? Have I gotten in the way of God executing his plan somehow in some way? And then on top of that, as a woman, Sarah feels inferior. She feels inadequate as a woman, as a wife, that she can't get pregnant, that she's a disappointment to those around her. She's a disappointment to her husband. She's a disappointment to her family. She's a disappointment to God as well. So all these things that they're dealing with internally are beginning to bubble up inside of them. I'm sure she feels those stares of contempt. Every time she goes out in public, she thinks everybody's talking about her. It's funny because when you struggle with this deficiency, everything becomes about you. And so everywhere that you go, every room that you walk into, you think automatically that everybody there is looking at you, staring at you, talking about you, when in reality they're not. But because I feel so insufficient, because I feel so inadequate, that's exactly how I'm feeling on the inside, and that's exactly how Sarah is feeling. All this is welling up inside of them. They're both fighting self-doubt. They're both fighting low esteem. They're both fighting a depleted confidence and self-worth. And temporarily, they're holding it all together on the outside, but things internally are on fire. And if you allow it, this pressure will eventually cause you to panic. And I say that because that's exactly what Abraham and Sarah did. When the pressure got to a certain level that they couldn't stand any longer, they panicked. And Sarah comes up with this crazy plan. She pulls Abraham in and she says, okay, I got it. I don't know what God's doing. I, he's taking a nap or something. He's forgotten about it, so I got it. Why don't you get with Hagar? Y'all sleep together. Perhaps she can conceive, and I'll obtain a son, and you'll obtain an heir through her. And Abraham agrees with it. Now, men, let me give you a little bit of easy wisdom 
today. If your wife, for whatever reason, comes to you and says, hey, I got an idea. Why don't you sleep with another woman? The answer is no. It's always no. It's not even a consideration. I don't care what kind of plan. I don't care how she justifies it. The answer is always going to be no. We good on that, men? Like it is an absolute no. No, it's not even a second guess that should have been given to this. But this is the plan that they come up with and that Abraham goes along with. Why? Because the pressure has gotten to such a point, it's caused them both to panic. And when you panic, you know what you do? You make bad decisions. You have knee-jerk reactions. Somehow, God's promise and God's plan has become, in Abraham and Sarah's mind, their job to execute. And it don't work like that. I truly believe in my heart, a lot of us here today, we look okay on the outside. But inside, your battle with insufficiency is wreaking havoc. The pressure is mounting. This pressure to measure yourself with the culture, this pressure to measure yourself with society and the people around you, pressure, I think some of you here feel pressure from your parents to, to make a grade, to find a job, to get out of the house finally, to move on with your life. I think some of you may feel pressure to, why can't you be more like your brother? Why can't you be more like your sister? Some of you feel that pressure. Some of you feel the pressure to measure to your peers, to find a relationship. You shouldn't be single at this stage. What are you doing? What's wrong with you? You can't find somebody to be married to. Some of you feel the pressure to find a relationship. You find pressure in wanting to be who they are and to have what they have. Some of you here feel pressure from your coach on a daily basis to perform, to produce at the level that everybody expects you to. Some of us here, adults, you feel the pressure to measure financially to the people around you, to, to measure up physically, to look a certain way, to have a, a certain body, to, to measure up materially, to, to have the things to keep up with the Joneses down the street. And every time that we don't measure up, every time that we fall short, that deficiency gets a little bit worse. I think some of us are struggling because yours and God's timeline aren't lining up. He's taking too long. Something should have happened by now. Something should have gave by now. Some door should have opened by now. And now internally you're filling up and you can't take it anymore. And you're about to make a decision to, out of panic, take control. Which is exactly what Sarah and Abraham did. When their timeline seemed to no longer line up with God's, they thought it is now our job and responsibility to take control of the situation. And that's when things got bad. So listen, please, please. Don't let what you believe to be your deficiency drive your decisions. Why? Because it will always only damage you and the people around you. The moment that Abraham and Sarah acted on a decision based off their apparent deficiency, everybody involved in the situation inside and out was damaged by that decision. So don't, in your panic, make a decision that's going to cause destruction to your life and to those around you. So this internal havoc eventually takes another step, and it begins to result in external harshness. So if we go back to the text again, 
in verse 5, we follow along with the saga. It says that Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I told the first service that I think Abraham and Sarah would make a great case study for a marriage conference. I feel like we relate in a lot of ways. And so Sarah gets upset with Abram and says, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. When she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between me and you. And Abram fires back and says to Sarah, Behold, your servant's in your power. Do to her as you please. And then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. You might can cover up to an extent, but eventually you can't help but wear externally what you're feeling internally. It's going to find its way out. And after things didn't work out like Sarah and Abraham had hoped, things began to get dicey. So Sarah hatches this plan, takes it to Abraham. Abraham decides to go through with it. After he goes through with it, and, and the plan is executed flawlessly, by the way, which suffice it to say that it's amazing the level of success the devil will grant to carrying out any plan that's not God's plan. Not only did the plan work to perfection, Hagar had a son. That's like a 50-50 chance there. Like Anybody figured out how to just like guarantee the fact that you get to choose boy or girl? They could make that choice. That's what I'm saying. If you will commit to executing a plan that's anything other than God's, you watch how the devil will grant that thing success all the way to the most minute detail. And so the plan goes flawlessly, and after it's all said and done with, Sarah gets mad about it. She calls Abraham in, starts chewing her out. Abraham, you went and slept with Hagar, and now she looked at me with contempt. Abraham's like, it was your idea. You're the one that told me to do this. Why don't you get mad with Hagar? And so Sarah goes and she starts chewing Hagar out, so much so to the point that she runs her out of the house. And here in Genesis chapter 16, we have like a full-blown Jerry Springer episode taking place in God's Word. It is pandemonium in the house of Abraham. Like things are going crazy and all the stuff that was bubbling up on the inside is now on the outside and the people are just getting screamed at. There's dishes being thrown. There's words being hurled. There's people being ran out of the house. Like I don't, the Canaan police are having to show up to deal with a domestic incident at Abraham's house. The things have gotten so out of control at this point because the pressure to measure up, those feelings of being insufficient, those feelings of being inadequate have finally popped and it isn't pretty. So these results are what we can expect to manifest in our lives as a result of our sufficiency deficiency as well. You know, people who suffer from this deficiency can at times, and I'm going to share something here, I don't want you to, I don't want you to get upset about it. I don't want you to get mad. I don't want you to feel hurt. And understand that I'm going to speak to these things because these things were shown to me as well. So I'm not pointing to anything in your life that I see as being evident, that I didn't have to see as being evident in my life as I struggled with this thing as well. And so people who suffer from this deficiency can at times be the most rude, harsh, and critical people to be around. And I'll tell you why. Because our coping mechanism for when we don't feel like we can measure up 
is to belittle everybody else down to our level. And so when I think I can't live up to the level of everybody else around me, when I feel insufficient, when I feel inadequate compared to the people around me, and I feel like I can't get to where they're at, then the most logical move for me to then make is to try and drag them down to where I am so that my insufficiencies, that my inadequacies begin to feel a little bit better. And the reality is, is that's not even who you are. You're not rude, you're not harsh, you're not critical ordinarily, but because you have this deficiency, because you struggle with sufficiency, it is causing you to react in that way. I told you earlier, people that have a legitimate vitamin deficiency can experience personality changes. The same is true with being deficient in sufficiency. It can begin to change the personality of who you are, the disposition of who you are. You begin acting and reacting in ways in which you normally wouldn't. When I struggle at this at my pinnacle, I remember one of like the most eye-opening moments was my wife telling me one night because I'd respond in a way in something that was rather harsh that she didn't deserve. And she handled it with a great amount of grace. And the only thing that she said back to me was, why are you talking to me like that? It's not who you are. That's not how you normally respond. And it was in that moment that I began to realize, well, okay, something's wrong. Like there's something's, something greater at work. Like something deeper is, is the problem, and that's what it boils down to. That's not necessarily who you are, but you're struggling with something that you didn't even really know was a problem in your life. And then from there, it only goes even further. We begin comparing for the sake of criticizing. And so we look at everybody else around us, and we compare and we criticize our lives over and against theirs. And the detriment of that is, is that it's not God's desire that we compare or criticize one another, but that we complement each other. It's never God's desire that his people, that his church come together and have it full of people that we're just constantly comparing and criticizing one another, bringing each other down, but that we would complement each other, that we would make each other better, that we'd make each other stronger, that we'd lock arms with one another as we do our best to live out this godly calling that he's placed upon our lives to serve and honor God in a holy and righteous way, not beat each other down in the midst of that. Jesus in John 17, when he prayed his one of his last prayers, you know what he asked for more than anything in that? Is that his people would be unified. That they would be together. That they would be one. Not that they would bite and devour each other. Not that they would criticize and, and, and compare to one another. They would complement each other. That they would grab each other and that they would celebrate their successes when they see it happening in somebody else's life. That they would motivate one another to live at an even deeper level of faith than they ever have before. And that they wouldn't get upset if they see God bring a blessing into somebody else's life that doesn't exist in yours right now. But when we have a deficiency, when we feel insufficient, when we feel inadequate, we just want to compare and we want to criticize. And then from there, one of the things that begins to show itself is that people who struggle with this deficiency can have a hard time with relationships because the moment they are made to feel insufficient or inadequate in it, they'll just end it at no fault of the other person's, they'll just move on. Why? Because they feel like they can't keep up. They feel like they can't maintain or sustain that relationship because they're not on the same level as the other person in it, and so they'll just withdraw from it. And if we don't get it regulated, then like Sarah, we're going to end up running people out of our lives. I don't know the extent of Sarah and Hagar's relationship before all this stuff happened. I would think that they were probably pretty tight, though. 
I don't really see any other reason why, out of all the other servants that were in Abram's house, that Sarah would have landed on Hagar as the one, as the best choice. So that leads me to think that they were probably close, that they were probably, you know, like sisters one time. And then once this happens, look at what's happened to this relationship. It's fragmented, it's broken. Sarah runs into Hagar's room and she says, get out of my house, I never want to see you again. Don't talk to me, don't call me, don't ask me to go out for coffee, lunch, none of that stuff. I never want to hear from you again. And this is what happens when we don't get this deficiency regulated. It takes us to a place where our external harshness begins to run people out of our lives. And then the last thing that it does that I want to show you is that it robs you of happiness. So we're going to move over to chapter 17 now, and I'm going to give you a few details, and they're going to skip a lot that I'm going to try and make up the gap. Yeah, but in verse 15, it says that God said to Abraham, As for your wife Sarai, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. And said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Now skip over to chapter 18. In verse 9, God's going to pay Abraham and Sarah another visit. And this time he says, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in a tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out, my Lord is old. Shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? After all this mess has transpired, Abraham and Sarah are still childless. And they're dealing with all kinds of animosity in their marriage. Hagar's been booted out of the house, along with Ishmael, who, by the way, was Abraham's son. Keep in mind, that's still his flesh and blood. That's still his child. But things have gotten so bad inside their house. Things have gotten so disruptive inside their house that for the sake of keeping his relationship intact with Sarah, he kicks Hagar and his son out of the house, tells them don't come back. Don't walk back in here again. So imagine what Abraham's dealing with on the inside. Imagine what Sarah's dealing with on the inside as she still remains childless at this point. It still seems like none of this is going to come to pass. And now imagine the, the tension and the animosity between these two people as a couple. Imagine being in the house day in and day out with a wife that can't bear children. Imagine being in the house day in and day out with a man who can't do his part either, apparently, to help you bear children, who is constantly seemingly dissatisfied with you and disgruntled with you. Like, I can assure you, Abraham and Sarah were doing anything but snuggling in the bed at night. Like, they were an arm's distance away from each other constantly. You know, you can't, you can't see it, but you can sense there's a lot of tension between these two. Because when God shows up and announces that Sarah's going to have a child, he says, when I come back this time next year, Sarah's going to have born a child. When he shows up, he asks Abraham, where's Sarah at? And you almost kind of get this sense in his response, she's in a tent. I don't know what she's doing. I don't keep up with her. I don't, I don't bother with that. 
She's in a tent doing her own thing. I don't listen. It's like it's like a disruptive marriage, man. That's exactly what you see take place now. And people, when when couples just get to a place where they survive each other instead of thrive with each other, then one's in the house and one's out of the house as much as possible. Abraham's like, I don't go in there unless it's bedtime. I ain't dealing with that. There's animosity. There's so there's no joy amongst them. There's no happiness amongst them. And yet God shows back up and he announces once again that the promise still stands. Now you would think that when God shows up after all the mess that has been made, after them taking matters in their own hands, them absolutely just making an absolute royal mess out of everything, for God to show back up and let them know, hey, it's still going to happen. I'm still in control. I'm still going to bless. You're still going to have a son. There's still going to be a great nation come from all the people's earth. They're still going to be blessed by you. You would think after all that they had done to mess that up, that when God announced that, Abraham and Sarah would have fallen down and said, thank you, God. Like, Are you serious? You're still going to do this? You're still, you still love us that much? You're still full of that kind of grace and mercy that you would still allow us to be a part of this plan, even though we've messed it up so desperately. Thank you, God. Like, th- you'd think they would rejoice. You'd think they'd be full of happiness. And they're laughing, yeah. But it's not a happy laugh. It's a sarcastic laugh. Abraham and Sarah, for the first time in probably years, had done something in a unified manner, and it was laugh sarcastically at God's promise. God shows up, Abraham, you're going to have a kid. Abraham's like, <laughs> oh, Lord, I'm 100 years old. It's just comical at this point, Lord. Kids, yeah. Shows back up, announces it again. Sarah's eavesdropping from the tent. Sarah's going to have a child this time next year. <laughs> what do you say? I'm going to have a child. After I'm worn out and Abraham's old as dirt. There's no happiness. There's no rejoicing. There's no celebrating. This pressure to measure these insufficiencies and inadequacies have robbed Sarah and Abraham of their happiness. And I promise you there's some people in this room today that because of your seeming insufficiency, you're sarcastically laughing at the promises of God as well. I think some of us here today, there are some things that God has promised you. There are some things that he has called you to. There are some things that he is leading you through. And because it hasn't happened when you think that it should have, or because there have been some things that have gotten in the way, there's been some hindrances, there's been some roadblocks, God has shown back up and reminded you that he's going to finish what he started, and you think, no way. (laughs) Not now. I'm too messed up, too insufficient, too inadequate. It ain't going to happen. There's no way that's going to take place. Your happiness is gone. Your joy in the Lord is gone. Your joy in serving him is gone. But look at what ends up happening. Genesis chapter 21. Verse 1 says that the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. Everybody say, as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Everybody say, and the Lord did. As he had said, and the Lord did. If you don't hear anything else this morning, hear the word of God in that. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him whom Sarah bore to him. I love, sometimes I love the details of Scripture. 
Like there are some things that I'm glad God put that in there. Sometimes I'm like, God, why couldn't you put a little something extra there? But this is one of those moments where I love a little extra detail. We know who bore the son. We understand the context here, but God just accentuates the point that Sarah bore the son. Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. That laughter has been restored in the right way. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? Man, this couple cracks me up sometimes. Sarah's like, at the end, it all comes to pass. She's like, who would have said? I know who did. Time and time again, the question is, who would have believed? Who would have said? My question for you is, what voice told you it wouldn't happen? What voice told you that you were insufficient? What voice told you that you were inadequate? What voice told you that you were disappointment? What voice told you that you were in embarrassment? What voice told you that you didn't measure up? I promise you it wasn't the voice of God. Never once did His voice enter into your life and say any of those things to you as one of His children. And so what I've come to find in the midst of all this is that I'm sufficient deficient because I filled myself with the wrong voice and deprived myself of the right one too much of the time. And that's what feeds this deficiency. You deprive yourself of what you need, and you fill yourself with the things that you don't. The same way with, the, with an, actual defi- an actual vitamin deficiency is you depriving yourself of what you really need to fill yourself with what you don't. And so when I'm at my pinnacle of feeling insufficient or inadequate or unworthy or unloved, feeling like a disappointment or a frustration to God, that always gets fed by a voice that's not His every single time. Because in God's Word, I hear Him say that I am fearfully and wonderfully made, that I was intricately woven into a masterpiece that bears His image. I hear a voice that says that I have been chosen and that I have been set apart for His purpose and for His plan. So if we're going to cure our deficiency, we've got to move our standard of measurement from the world to the Word. Because in His Word, you know what? In His Word, there's no pressure. There's just promise. Abraham and Sarah only felt the pressure when they forgot about the promise. So much of our lives, we feel this pressure to measure, and it only comes when we fail to remember and trust in the promises of God. Why don't you bleed off some pressure this morning? Get it off of you. Get it off of the world and put it back onto God's Word. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 6, we're, we're, we're done. We're finished. I think Paul, in and of himself, struggled with being sufficient in the calling that God had placed upon his life. Because you can hear that so much in his sentiments that he expresses all throughout the Word. He talks about how God had set him apart to be a minister, to be an apostle. And yet time and time again, we also see him talking about how he was the chief of sinners. That he was a blasphemer, he was a persecutor, he was an insolent opponent 
of God and His Word and His church and His people and His Son. And so I think so often Paul is in his life and he's saying, God, I, why me? Why you would call me of all people to do this? I do not know. I do not understand. I don't feel worthy to do it. I don't feel like I can carry it out so often. Like, I, Why did you pick somebody else? Somebody else more qualified. Somebody who could have better represented you. But I think God taught him through this as well because he says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. In and of ourselves, we aren't sufficient. But we have a Savior who is and through him has made us sufficient to be his hands and his feet and his voice and his heart here on this earth.